0: From creation to the flood to the patriarchs to Egypt, join me, Pastor Hook, as we go through Genesis, the backstory to the beginning. So today we're going to talk about Jacob and his family. And if you'll remember, yesterday we talked about how Dinah was raped. And so Simeon and Levi go and rescue Dinah and kill all the tribe to rescue Dinah, and then the last thing we heard in in Genesis chapter 34 was Jacob saying that you've really put us in a really precarious and difficult position because now nobody's gonna trade with us, nobody's gonna let us live next to us, so what are we gonna do? Well, we're gonna find that out today because God has a solution for Jacob. And the solution for Jacob Shows up in Genesis 35. So let's just see what happens. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had in their rings and in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the the towns all around them, so that no one pursued them. And Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. So, now, you might think it's crazy that they have foreign gods, but Jacob is a man who's following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He is he is definitely following God. But remember, some of these other people in his camp don't necessarily follow him. If you'll remember Rachel, was it Rachel or Leah, when uh, Uncle... Laban lost all, Uncle Laban had a lot of gods in his house. They were stolen and those are still with Jacob. So the, even though Jacob is a follower of the one true God, um, all these other people with Jacob have a lot of different gods. But, but God ca- appears to him and he says, listen, go to Bethel and build an altar there uh, to God who appeared to you, this one God who appeared to you while you're fleeing from brother Esau. So Jacob is like, okay, I'm now gonna commit to this one God, I'm gonna build an altar to him. And he'd already built an altar there, but he's gonna go and settle there and um, and build an altar to God. And this is gonna be the God, because this is the God that changed him from, we saw previously where he's changed from Jacob to Israel. And so Jacob is gonna do that. So he tells all the people in his tribe, come give me all your things, purify yourselves and change your clothes. So apparently there's something about the clothes they were wearing and the gods that they were, they had earrings, they had clothes, they had all sorts of things to remind them all these, all these different gods. And Jacob says, no, it's just going to be the one true God. So bring me all your stuff, even your clothes. Uh, and we're going to purify ourselves and we're going to bury all this stuff and we're going to go to a new place. And I love this idea of burying it. Because there are times in our life when, uh, maybe not in your life, but you'll know people in their life who they get all messed up with all sorts of different things and it seems their life is out of control, right? For Jacob, uh, he's got all these different tribes pursuing him or he's thinking that they might pursue him. Um, He's got uh, all, all this trouble going on in his life. He's got people in his tribe following all these different gods. And he's, it sounds like here in this chapter in 35, he's like, okay, I'm done with this. God, you're in charge. We're going to purify ourselves. We're going to put away all this stuff. We're going to bury it and we're going to follow you. And um, there are times in life where you basically simply have to bury all the old stuff by the tree in shechem, right? Bury all this stuff and start anew. And that's what Jacob is doing. He's basically burying all the old stuff and starting anew. And there's there's a purification that happens at that point, right? Because it's like uh, all the messed up stuff in my life and now I'm going to bury it all and now I'm going to follow you. If you've ever talked to anybody who has gone through a 12-step program, this is what they tell you to do, right? I mean, the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that there's a problem, you have to come to grips that, you know, a lot of people who have addictions, uh, they, they don't they don't believe they have addiction. They think they can cope with it. They think that they don't have to make any major sacrifices or major changes in their life, that things are going well. Of course, all the people around them can look and see all the damage that's being done. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if there's enough love and compassion and care there, they'll come and tell the person and point out all the damage that's being done. And if the person is willing to accept and understand and hear that, they call that an intervention, then um, perhaps you know, it'll break through this, you know, this barrier that they have in their head. And when that happens and uh, when they realize, okay, I really do have an addiction and I can't do this by myself, I need help, that's when they can take and finally take all the junk and the garbage in their life and bury it and move forward. And those are really, really beautiful, wonderful moments in life, and you know Jacob's got the same thing going on here. He's gonna bury all the stuff at the oak tree in Shechem and bring the whole time. I mean, he's got, he's got all these kids, uh, he's got grandkids, he's got two wives. The wives have concub, you know, not I guess they're concubines to Jacob, but they're servants to the wives. This whole entire tribe, and Jacob is like, we're gonna, we're gonna do a fresh start here. And so they bury all the stuff at the oak tree in Shechem, and then they move on with a fresh start. And uh, you know, maybe maybe you know somebody in there in your life that needs a fresh start. Uh, and you know, there's so and It's not even just addictions, right? It could be anything in life that is preventing you from living the life that God has for you. Um, I mean, it could be anything. Um, maybe it could be anger that you have towards someone that really, really hurt you very bad, and you're still living with the pain of that anger, and that anger is sitting like a coal burning, smoldering in your belly, and maybe there's a point in your life where you say, you know, I just can't deal with this anger anymore, and so you take that anger out of your heart and out of your belly, and you dig a hole, and you put it there, and you cover it up, and you say, I'm done with that. Um, it could be, like I said, in the addiction. It could be a relationship problem, you know, where somebody hurt you. And uh, I mean, there's a number of different ways that we hold on to things in our life. We hold on to these false idols in our life that prevent us from living the full and complete, abundant life that Jesus came to this earth and died to set us free, so that we could live for. Right. Um, and so I this is also just a great thing uh, to be able to to bury bury things in the past and move forward. And that that's what basically Jacob's doing here. So he buries everything and they set out and the terror of God fell on all the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. So it's not only like Jacob did a fresh start, but God in the background, with his power and his, holy angels, is putting the fear, his fear, in all the towns around, so that they don't come and pursue Jacob. And they, and they could have, right? Because they know what Jacob's sons did, and they might want righteousness and justice for that. Even though it may have been justified, in my opinion, killing all the males was a little bit over the top. Um, remember, there's no law of Moses yet, so there's no set punishment for the things that happen. For uh, Simeon and Levi, uh, th- th- this was a was an, a righteous punishment. But if but in retrospect, looking at it, it may not have been all that righteous. It may have been over the top. But definitely, uh, we deserved. You know, at some level, some punishment was deserved. But uh, but that's the way it is, right? You. Uh, you do what you, you feel is right. Um, you know, Thank goodness that we have laws now in our country that kind of give what the punishment should be. And we debate and all that sort of thing. We come up with laws about punishments. Punishments are for two reasons, right? One is to prevent behavior from happening. Uh, so you want to set the punishment high enough to where you put the fear of God in people so they don't do that behavior. But the second thing is is that you have to follow through with that punishment so the punishment needs to be fair so that whatever the punishment is, it seems like on balance, it seems like a, a, a right punishment. And the thing is, is that for one person, it might be devastating, you know, the crime that you do against that person might be devastating, for another person it might not be all that devastating. Uh, and so that's why you have judges because they can kind of sense in the courtroom and all that sort of thing. And so if you ever go to court and you want the maximum amount of punishment meted out, um, you know, give the vibes to the judge that this is the worst thing that's ever happened to you and the judge will put the maximum punishment sometimes. I mean, judges are pretty clever. I mean, judges ultimately in the United States, are judges are the ones who mete out punishments and they do the best as they can. Most of the times uh, I've been involved in those kind of things. I've seen the judge basically split the baby in two, Right. They, they never side ultimately on one side or the other. They basically kind of just walk the fine line between two sides to try to judge. And that's one of these things that you learn, you know, the older you get. Anyway, so, uh, man, Jacob, uh, now they're coming up to Bethel in the land of Canaan. Let's see what happens. There, Jacob built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel. El, which is short for God, Elohim. Bethel, house of God. So God the house of God, because it was there that God revealed himself to Jacob when he was fleeing from his brother. So uh, this is he gets to arrives at Bethel and he calls the place El Bethel because it was there that he was fleeing from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alan Bakuth. And if you'll remember, um, Deborah, Rebecca, of course, is his mother. Deborah is the servant or the nurse, um, died, and she was buried under the oak outside Bethel, and so they named that Elan Bakuth. And after Jacob returned from Paddam Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. We actually saw this earlier in um, a couple chapters back where Jacob, God appears to Jacob and says, I'm no longer going to call you Jacob, I'm going to call you Israel. Uh, and so, because um, you wrestled with God. Um, so you're now Israel. And then verse 11 And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with them. So it almost sounds like he's having an actual conversation with Jacob. And Jacob has had these, you know, wrestlings with God um, and and Isaac and and Abraham, they've all had these what we call theophanies, where God comes into their life and talks to them. And it appears that the same thing is happening with Jacob. And he says something very, very curious. He said, I am God Almighty. Um, and then he says, be fruitful and increase in number. And if you'll remember, in the Garden of Eden, way back when we started Genesis, they were in the Garden of Eden. There were two commands that God gave to Adam before the fall. The first was increase and multiply be fruitful and multiply, and the second command was subdue the earth. And so uh, all of mankind before the fall, we were created to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth. What do I mean by that? I mean that following God's command pre-fall is not that hard. Be, Be fruitful and multiply is not a hard command to follow. And subdue the earth is not a hard command to follow. Subduing the Earth means uh, challenge the earth, understand the earth. Uh, and I think of that today is trying to figure out you know the stems, the, the science technology, engineering and math, right trying to figure out what are all the processes, how does the earth work? What are the fundamental forces of the earth and how are they knit together and uh, how can we use you know the resources that God's given us to fight disease, like fight the pandemic? I mean, basically coming up with a pandemic vaccine, that's subduing the earth, right? And at some level, we want to do this. We were created to do this. So if you ever hear somebody that says that um, that Christians or people who are religious are anti-science, the answer should be absolutely not. Christians are the first and foremost uh, pro-science. Why? Because it is through science that In one way, science helps us subdue the earth. And that is a command from God pre-fall. We were created to subdue the earth. We were created to do the research and the you know the where you come up with a hypothesis and you test that hypothesis and challenge it, which is basically what the vaccine is, right? The hypothesis is this vaccine will work. The experiment, let's produce a bunch of vaccine, let's give it clinically to a bunch of people with the placebo. And a non-placebo or, you know, with an actual vaccine, let's randomize it uh, so they don't even know if they're getting the vaccine or not. Uh, And let's do enough people so we can actually see if there's a statistical difference, is it safe, and all that stuff. All of that stuff, Christians should celebrate because that's part of the command of what God called us to do to subdue the earth. Um, You know, the the, uh, art of psychology and psychology or psychiatry and all the different ways that God has created, uh, even, I mean, honestly, forms of government. Now, we live here in the United States with a representative democracy, but uh, there have been other, tr- there, people have tried other forms of government, and we should try and experiment with other forms of government. Uh, I mean, obviously, changing a government is very, very difficult, takes revolution. I don't know if uh, the United States should change their government, but certainly other places around the world could change their government, And they might try something that's different from representative democracy. I mean, there's all, these are things that we should try in our lives, in our world, to try to subdue the earth. And if anybody says uh, Christians are anti, you know, subdue the earth or whatever, tell them absolutely not. It's a command from God to subdue the earth. And so uh, I celebrate that we live in the United States because our, you know, we are an experiment in how we can self-govern. And right now, we're in a a massive time of turmoil to test whether or not the limits of our Constitution are gonna work for our society. And um, at some point, it'll either calm itself down, maybe after the election, uh, or maybe after some uh, some uh, amount of change happens to satisfy the people that are rioting, I don't know, uh, or, or, or not. But certainly we're not uh, about, I don't see, in my lifetime, changing the Constitution. Although um, the only way that you know change has ever happened because people get entrenched in the way of living that they are, and that includes governments, um, if the government is, isn't working for a subset or a section of the population, then it is possible that a change is necessary. Now I, th- I personally believe, I'll give you my personal belief, that the Constitution of the United States has enough variability in it to where we can withstand some of these things. But uh, you know, maybe after my lifetime, uh, maybe in the future we will find that there's something in our Constitution that just doesn't work for a subsection of the population and a change needs to make. And if the government makes that change, great. If that government continues to not make that change, then the only way the change can be made is through revolution. And revolutions do cause pain and bloodshed and lives lost and all that sort of thing. I have no idea, I'm not making a political statement, except that I think that the Constitution of the United States is uh, robust enough and strong enough to handle you know, the riots that we're seeing today. Uh, And uh, but I don't know in the future, you know, what issues may arise and whether or not the Constitution can handle those issues or not. And that's for a later discussion at a later time. Um, But uh, we should subdue the earth. And so I don't know how I got off on subduing the earth, but I did. So anyway, uh, yeah, be fruitful and increase in number. And then he says, a nation and a community of nations will come from you. Kings will be of your descendants. Of course, we know some of those kings that come. uh, Basically, um, King David uh, and Jesus, the ultimate king, comes from Jacob and Israel. All right, let's continue on. So, verse 14. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he also poured oil on it, and Jacob called the place where God had talked with him, Bethel, which is house of God. So God sets up a stone pillar, or Jacob sets a, a stone pillar. It's a fresh start, and uh, he pours a drink offering on it. All right, so we'll just go ahead and finish out this chapter. There's not a whole lot left. Um, verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. As she breathed her last for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Oni, but his father named him Ben-Yamin. This is is very sad. Um, If you'll remember, Jacob spent 14 years of his life working so that Uncle Laban would give to him Rachel. Rachel was the love of his life. Rachel was everything to Jacob. Jacob, his heart was set on Rachel from the first time he looked at her. And um, he had to marry Rachel's older sister Leah in order to get Rachel. He had to work 14 years. uh, But through Rachel and Leah, he was able to have a bunch of children. Rachel and Leah had um, servants. He had children through them that gave him all the all the people that he has, you know, all the sons that he has. Uh, up before this, he has 11 sons and one daughter, Dinah. And now he has another son. And this son is Benjamin. And you can imagine that Benjamin is a very, very special son to Jacob because it was through Benjamin that Rachel died. And so the last vestige of Rachel, all the love and the compassion in his heart and everything that he had you know, now falls on Benjamin or Joseph. Joseph is, so Rachel has two sons for from Jacob. One is Joseph, and now this other one is Benjamin. All the other sons are from other wives, but his heart was towards Rachel. And so naturally, Jacob just has this natural affinity and love for Benjamin and for Joseph. They are really very, very, very special sons to to Jacob. Now, I'm sure Jacob appreciates all of his other sons, loves all his other sons. But there's something about Joseph and now Benjamin that that are special to Jacob's heart. Um, then we'll go on verse 19. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar is marked as Rachel's tomb. So apparently it was still there. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Migdal Eder. While Israel was living in the region, Reuben went in and slept with his father concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Now that's interesting. Um, so the sons, you know, all these sons, don't, do not they not have wives of themselves? Um, and Reuben, who's the oldest, went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. So, man, we could spend a whole lot of time on that but we're, we're not. Well, we'll, um, let's just say that he was, he was ready to have some children and hadn't been married yet or whatever. So he goes and sleeps with the concubine Bilhah and his father knows about it. Um, apparently doesn't do anything about it. Um, and then Genesis, uh, beginning in chapter 35, verse 23, the sons of Leah, Reuben was the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun. The sons of Rachel are Joseph and Benjamin. The son of Rachel's servant Bilhah were Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Leah's servant Zilpah were Gad and Asher. And these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddam, Iran. So uh, those are the sons. And um, in a minute, I'll show you the chart. Uh, Let's just finish this out. Verse 27, Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre near Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people old and full of years and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So apparently Jacob and Esau came back together again to bury their father, which is kind of a cool thing. Lived 180 years. People say that's not, that's not, that's impossible. Not necessarily. Um, I don't know if we've talked about this, but remember before, before the flood, people were living a long time. After the flood, they started living less time. 180 years. Could you and I live 180 years? I don't know. I mean, will medical science figure out what is the thing that we're lacking in our diet or nutrition or exercise or way of life or stress or something that prevents us from living longer lives? And I don't know. And Jacob, remember, was blessed and touched by God. So he knew he was a child of God. And um, so I don't know. Uh, 180 years to me seems a very, very, very long time. But maybe not. Maybe... Maybe science and techn- I mean, we now have people, what, the life expectancy 100 years ago was 35 or 40, and now the life expectancy, I clearly think I'm going to live for sure in my 80s, probably in my 90s. I mean, my dad, my grandparents all lived into their 90s. Um, although my dad's not 90 yet, but he's in really good health, and I, I can see him going well into his 90s. Um, so, uh, and we've known other people. There's a person in our congregation 98 this week, and uh, she wants to go to 100, and I think she absolutely will. And um, so, 100 is the new 80, right? So, could we live to 180? I don't know. What What would it take for us? When will science and technology and subdue the earth? When will we figure out what it is that we need to do to our life so that we can live to 180? And I I don't mean just like you know gasping for breath at 180, but I mean. Um, you know, living a rich and full and wonderful alert life, you know, past 100. And man, those people are coming out of the woodwork. There's a lot of people that are living into their hundreds now. Um, and I think we're, we're at a generation now where science and technology, I mean, most people die from two major things, right? Heart disease and cancer. Well, we are rapidly trying to figure out what both of those things, you know, how to solve both of those things. And then diseases, we've, what used to kill most people was diseases, right? We've, we've pretty much tackled most diseases. Um, you know, every once in a while, one pops up, you know, this COVID-19 pops up. But uh, if you don't have a disease and you're not going to die of cancer or heart disease, you know, then you're just going to die of old age. And um, so anyway, uh, it would not surprise me if my granddaughter lives in a generation where everybody's life expectancy is well into the you know past 100. That would not surprise me at all. So when they say that uh, Isaac lived 180 years old, I I can kind of see it. I mean, you might think it's stretching it a little bit, but his gene pool is closer to Adam and Eve's, so it's a stronger gene pool. Uh, the food that they were eating is definitely food that was in the Garden of Eden that they've learned how to eat and that might be in that region that maybe we've long since lost and maybe some of those foods have anti-aging things in them that, that have been lost. I mean, I don't know the answer to this except that I think science and technology will figure it out at some point and I'm excited about that. All right, so um, let's just really quickly look at uh, the chart here. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Jacob has uh, two wives, Leah and Rachel. Rachel is the one that he absolutely fell in love with. Leah's the older sister, Rachel's the younger sister. And you can see that Leah has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah all come from Leah. So you can see why Reuben and Simeon were upset when Dinah was raped, because that's their actual blood sister. Uh, and then after after Judah was born Rachel still hadn't had any children so she tells Jacob to uh, consummate with Rachel's servant Bil- Bilha so then you have Dan and Naphtali and then Leah's like well if you can do that then I can do it too so he tells Jacob she tells Jacob t- to have sex with Zilpah and they have Gad and Asher and then um, lo and behold, at the end of all this, finally, Rachel has two children, Joseph and Benjamin. And, and of course, Joseph and Benjamin are very precious and loved children of Jacob. Uh, and he has a special, special love in his heart for those two. And of course, we should, we should weep over the fact that Rachel died in childbirth. That's, you know, we don't have people die in childbirth as much. What what is it that uh, that they get? It's not sepsis, but it's um, but they get uh, fetal fetal, I don't know. But there's there is a syndrome happened in Downton Abbey that that show Downton Abbey. One of the daughters died, and you know, whatever that is, that disease where you get where the body goes into shock basically as it's having childbirth, and it's terrible. Now we know how to deal with it, but back then, you know. Back then, they didn't know how to deal with it, and if it was a really difficult pregnancy, people died. Anytime you had children, there was a potential you're going to die. Now it doesn't happen so much, but that back then it did. So this kind of ends this portion. Um, I think we're gonna we're just what in chapter 35. Uh, we're gonna move into chapter 36, and then we're gonna get into a great story of the Bible. So um, let's let's just go ahead and close in prayer. Dear God, thanks for today. Thank you for gathering together around your word. Um, We thank you for the examples that you provide to us of people who live their lives in real situations. Continue to guide us in all that we do, and until we meet again, keep us in your grace. In Jesus' name.